and gender are interrelated in so many different ways. And you can see this from the material to the embodied to the social cultural. And food is really, as of course a lot of your listeners know, it's really at the heart of care work, but women's labor in food, both in the private sphere and public, is often invisibilized. The, the problem that we saw was really the absence of female-centered stories specifically around food systems change, but then as, as she explained, like it's kind of then become about more than just food systems change, but really looking at all of the different systems of power and systems of oppression that characterize our day-to-day -day lives. Hello there. Welcome to the Chakula podcast. I'm your host, Felistes Mwalia. We bring to you all relevant issues and discussions about food in Kenya and beyond. We break down topics and dig deeper into day-to-day -day happenings in food and farming systems, giving a holistic view on the food we eat. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chakula podcast. Food is a crucial subject all over the world. It's at the center of our lives. It's a basic human right necessary to life rather than a commodity that we can invent, reinvent and innovate. Food also has a lot to do with power relations, specifically on gender relations. And this is often less talked about either on social media and mainstream media. And today I'm lucky enough to be hosting two individuals who have been decolonizing the narratives around gender and food, and they use food as a lens to explore culture and society. They publish stories that deepen the way we think, and they in turn providing us with powerful conceptual tools to challenge and dismantle inequalities. To start us off, perhaps Zoe and Isabella, you could start by introducing yourself and what is it that you do. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Um, yeah, my name is Zoe, and I am the co-founding editor of Feminist Food Journal, along with Isabella. Um, I am from Canada, but currently living in Berlin um, and also working um, in international development um, at the moment, but also have a background in um, food systems studies. I did my undergraduate degree at the Faculty of Land and Food Systems in um, in BC, back in my home in Canada, um, and then studied international development um, in the UK. And um, yeah, I'm really, really happy to be here. So thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much, Zoe. Over to you, Isabella. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Um, so my name is Isabella. I'm also from Canada. Actually, Zoe and I are both from Vancouver, um, although we met in Berlin when we were working at the same consulting firm. Um, I have a background in food policy. And actually, as an undergraduate, I studied journalism. So that's where my love of of magazines uh, first sprouted. Um, so I have a background in food policy. I've been working as an independent food systems researcher for about the past year and a half. Um, and I've recently started, recently meaning like two and a half weeks ago, a PhD um, in food system studies here in Barcelona, where I'm now based. Um, so like Zoe said, we both are very interested in food systems issues. We're both passionate feminists. So Feminist Food Journal was the, the perfect project for us to team up on. Um, after we met and realized that we loved working together and also loved spending time with each other um, outside of work. Okay, interesting. So, and it's also quite interesting what the both of you are doing with the Feminist Food Journal. And it will also be just interesting for the both of you to share with our listeners on what inspired the both of you to start the platform and what problems did you see and what do you hope that food, and what do you hope that the Feminist Food Journal will achieve? 
For sure. So I think what inspired us to start off with is just, first of all, that food and gender are interrelated in so many different ways. And you can see this from the material to the embodied to the social cultural. And food is really, as of course, a lot of your listeners know, it's really at the heart of care work, but women's labor in food, both in the private sphere and public is often invisibilized. And I think Zoe and I were really feeling like there weren't many feminist resources that dealt with food and not many food resources that dealt with feminism. And this gap for me, it became really clear um, when I actually left the job that Zoe and I were both working at in Berlin. Now, two years ago, which is crazy times, this really flies. Um, and that was around the time I was getting extremely into food systems research. So I decided to take some time off. Um, and alongside finishing a certificate in food system studies, I went to go study permaculture and to work on a farm for a little while. Um, and all the while was doing a lot of reading about sustainable food systems and food transformation. And was just really feeling like this sort of hyper-masculine overload from a lot of the sort of revered resources in the sector. And if you think about sort of the iconic texts that people look at for food system change, I mean, they're mostly written by men, right? You can think of say Dan Barber in The Third Plate or Michael Pollan with The Omnivore's Dilemma and a lot of his other books. Um, yeah. And I just really remember feeling like through my readings that the female experience was very underrepresented. Um, and I think there was like one moment reading Dan Barber's book on The Third Plate where a, a female character who's portrayed through the whole book um, as just the wife of a farmer, her name is, I think it's Mary Howell Martins, um, and she's married to now quite a prominent um, organic farmer in the US. She's just portrayed as kind of the simple farmer's wife. And then it comes out at the end of the book that she's actually a revered seed breeder and a very renowned geneticist in the field of um, plant breeding. And I just remember thinking like, okay, wow, we really need to be able to tell stories about food systems change from different perspectives. Um, and that was kind of where the idea for FFJ was born um, in the south of Chile with like barely an internet at this permaculture center. I remember like running to get internet and told Zoe that <laughs> I think we should start this, this thing, even though we had no idea um, what it would look like. Um, that said, I know I just spoke a lot about food systems change and you introduced us as a, as a magazine that is using food as a lens to interrogate power. Yeah, um, society and culture more broadly. And that's very much, I think, what we've become. I think we started off with this more sort of policy oriented food systems angle in mind. But even by the time we published our first issue, we realized that really food is a tool to investigate so many inequalities um, mm -hmm. that we see. And we didn't want to stay limited to specifically only looking at inequalities in the food system. We kind of delved into using food as a, yeah, a lens for a lot of other issues. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And Isabella, just a quick question: Is it that the main interest for you to to link food and feminism is it because you also did all you 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 also did something in regards to food systems, or it's because the of the many issues you are able to see? Sorry, Shelley. Can you repeat the question? I also only have one ear in my headphones working, so it could have been. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. For me, I'm just asking the interest. Why specifically? Why did you specifically decide to choose food, not any other issue to link it with feminism? Why specifically food? Is it that it's often underexplored? Why specifically food? Oh, that's such a great question. That's, yeah. that's I should have maybe touched on that. No, that's great. Um, for me, food, I mean, I grew up in a family that was very food oriented um, with a lot of emphasis on family meal times and cooking at home or eating out together as a family activity. So I think food was always something that I grew up with a very acute awareness of the importance for. 
Um, and then later when I was older and I finished my master's degree, I also worked like Zoe in international development for a while. And a few of the projects I worked in had a specific food security component, um, mostly for women in remote areas um, in Nepal. And I remember finding that sort of the most fascinating area of the project because you quickly realize how interlinked food security is with other areas of your lives. And I found this sort of cross-cutting aspect of food um, and the way that it lets you delve into then so many other parts of our world, extremely, extremely enticing and extremely fascinating. Yeah. Okay. And Zoe, basically, when you, when the both of you started this the platform, what problems were you able to see in regards to food and feminism? Yeah. I mean, maybe I'll just add a little to what Isabella said, uh, also about why we why we think food is such an interesting yeah um, lens, and I think that will lead me <laughs> into an answer for you. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the other thing is that that food is so central to everything, like uh, everything, or everyone's lives every day and the abundance of it or um, absence of it, no matter what, it's still something that we engage with every day. And so I think that's why um, it's so interesting to interrogate power and interrogate power through a feminist lens. Um, yeah, so that's, that's why food and feminism and not feminism and some other issue, I think, mm -hmm. as well. Um, and I guess to that, I think the, the problem that we saw, um, as Isabella um, hinted at, um, it was really the absence of female-centered stories, um, specifically around food systems change. But then, as, as she explained, like it's kind of then become about more than just food systems change, but really looking at like um, interrogating um, the all of the diff different systems um, of power and systems of oppression that characterize our day-to-day -day lives. Um, and so it's about um, creating a platform for those stories to be told and also amplifying voices um, that you might not see amplified or um, perspectives that you might not see um, represented in other forms of food media. Um, and I think there is obviously, um, we're not the first one um, to, to talk about food and feminism, and we're very much building upon uh, the work of other activists and scholars. Um, we read this amazing book called Feminist Food Studies right at the beginning when we first started out. Um, and, and of course, many other um, authors like um, Psyche A. Williams-Forson and Ashanti M. Reese. Um, uh, but I guess there's not, there's not a, popular media, I mean, we're not exactly popular media, but we're also not really academia. Um, we're yeah. kind of trying to do a little bit of this translation function. And so we are trying to fill this gap of like, there are all of these amazing women um, and um, yeah, I mean, not, not only women, of course, as well, like all kinds of people whose, whose stories deserve to be told that aren't really getting, that are getting erased yeah. by this really male-centric narrative. Today is an important day for Kenyans because you're celebrating Mashujadi, that's Heroes Day. And uh, during, during the struggle for independence and during the Maumau uprising, women really, women really played an important role, but the role that they played is really not discussed as much as what the role of the, role of the bell counter. During the Maumau uprising, the role of women is not discussed as much as the role of their male counterparts. Yet women played an important role in the fight for independence by basically providing food for their husbands and their sons in the forest. And uh, 
going through the, the, your website, going through the FFJ website, I saw that you were able to at least publish three three issues now. And for me, my favorite one was, was the one on work because it relates so much with today, specifically Mashujade. And I would really want to get to understand basically how do you basically decide on the topic that you'll discuss under the FFJ website? And what contribution do this do those articles contribute to the feminist or food movements? For sure. So we first did a brainstorm on article themes about a year ago, or article topics and themes. Um, before FFJ was even really born as a website, we kind of, you know, we had a Google sheet we were going through, and we started to look at where all these individual ideas that we were putting together could cluster, themes that could cluster around. Milk felt particularly urgent, and I think we had more exciting ideas for that one than others. So we started with that. Um, to be honest, I wish I could tell you it was like a super systematic selection of topics. Um, it's not exactly random per se, but there's definitely something quite intuitive about the way we choose the themes. Um, and I think we've been, yeah, definitely we're not overthinking it. If we just, it sounds right and it feels right. And we think we could have a lot of great ideas that could come in on that topic, we just go with it. Um, you know, it's sort of like what we've said in our, our last few replies is that we want to cover really a variety and a diversity of topics because we want to drive home how food is a feminist issue, how feminist issues relate to food across so many different domains. Like Zoe said, food is so ubiquitous in our lives. We all relate to it every day, um, whether up close or from far away. So for us, sort of really covering topics that are super different, like you said, war, and we just published sex, um, which I are two obviously extremely distinct themes, I think for us that really allow, we just want to be able to demonstrate like how these issues cut across things that people might not even think about them being involved in. Um, so that's, yeah, that's our sort of <laughs> ad hoc theme selection yeah. process. Yeah. yeah, and what contribution have they made basically to the feminist food movements? Have you been able yes. to get like feedback? Yeah, yeah. So that's, I definitely think at the moment we're, we're not working directly with any feminist movements. And I think that's something that in the future, I would really love to be able to close that gap a little bit more um, between, between media, between scholarship and between activism. Um, but I think at the moment we see our role more as just being able to inform movements and think about the ways that movements can work together. You know, I was recently reading a book by Angela Y. Davis where she calls for a sort of global consciousness of movements and the ways that movements that seem disparate in different parts of the world are actually often fighting the same enemy and can learn a lot from each other. Um, and this came up also recently in an interview we published over the summer, um, someone who works for Animal Rebellion, uh, which is a grassroots group um, fighting the meat and dairy sector in the UK. And she led their strategy and comms um, for a few years, and she talked a lot about the ways, say, the animal liberation movement and gender liberation movements can come to work together um, and see their fight as the same fight. Um, and that was very, yeah, that was very inspiring. You know, I was also just the other day doing a reading on the ways that feminist movements and agroecological movements, for mm -hmm. example, sometimes miss each other. Yeah. Um, it was an article looking at the example of Spain, and that means that food is often not considered in the progress made by feminist activists and vice mm -hmm. versa that you know gender is not considered in the progress made by food activists yeah. and that can further invisibilize women's care work um it can lead to women being disempowered in supply chains etc so ideally right now our work is just serving to inform mm -hmm. movements and feminist movements and hopefully 
inspire any readers who are active in that space to break down silos and join forces and, and work together. Um, Zoe, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. No, I think you've captured it beautifully. I mean, I think it's also not only aimed at, at activists, um, but also in, I think, as you, as you said in the, in the introduction, probably like really trying to give people the tools to start thinking about these things and the ways that they're um, so bound up in, in power relations and how, how food can be used as a tool of, of liberation in our everyday lives um, in like the small ways as well as these kind of like big collective ways and how those two come together. Yeah, and what makes the work that the both of you do different or unique? In yeah. I think what makes us unique mm -hmm. is that um, we are, as far as we know, the only kind of living resource dedicated to food and feminism, mm -hmm. um, and that we are trying to apply um, the the kind of frameworks and ideas of all of the scholars that I've mentioned and activists that I mentioned who've come before us to issues that are both uh, historic and contemporary. And, and in this way, we're trying to contribute to really expanding the field of feminist food studies to encompass a broad range of different topics. Um, and I think it's, it's funny how you see resonances of the same types of ideas coming up again and again in our answers. Um, but similarly to, to what as Isabella said about um, you know, breaking down boundaries between different um, social movements, um, also breaking down boundaries between different um, ways of thinking and, and fields, I suppose, in academia. So thinking about um, bringing together feminist studies and food studies, which has been done, of course, um, but can, can be probably integrated. And the sharing between these two fields could be um, yeah. richer. And I think also um, a really main Part of our goal is around amplifying diverse voices um, and and we're really working hard um, to ensure that the stories that we're telling um, that the stories themselves are unique but also that the perspectives that they're presented from are ones as I said that you you might not see published elsewhere and that we're telling stories um, through angles that might be lesser known or might not be might not be seen um, published as widely and um, of course we recognize that that we're not perfect. There are huge gaps in our own knowledge and our own perspectives and, and blind spots, um, especially, you know, we're two white cis women from Vancouver, um, but that we're, yeah, we're working really hard and um, being super deliberate about, about how we, about the stories that we tell um, and about also trying to continue to learn ourselves. Yeah, perhaps I can also just comment on how different I found your website, how different I found the FFJ platform looking like. For me, it was a bit more, easily digestible to just go through the content you're sharing and easily understand in comparison to what I've been reading and in comparison to the stories that I've been reading around, just trying to link food and feminism. And the stories being told on the website were really quite, I don't want to say simplistic, but they were just quite interesting and very easily digestible. Yeah. Isabella, do you have anything to add on how FFJ is different? Yeah, I think, first of all, just thanks for that, that feedback on our stories. And I think that means we're doing something right, because like Zoe said, we really want to be this translation function um, between mm -hmm. academia and popular media. We want to be able to publish things that are accessible to everybody, still intelligent, yeah. um, but accessible and not, and not alienating, like a lot of academic resources. 
So it's always good. It's always good to feel like that's that's heading in the right the yeah. right direction. Um, I know. I think I think Zoe really hit the nail on the head when she's talking about what makes this unique is yeah being this sort of evolving living resource as opposed to these more static academic volumes. Yeah. Um, and I think publishing only online also makes us extremely nimble in a way, and we're very agile and able to sort of take on and publish interesting topics or people that come into our orbit with very little notice. And I think that's something that's really great. Um, we have our four issues a year and those are a bit more regimented in terms of publishing. Um, but we also publish newsletters on a general topic on food and feminism once a month. And that gives us, yeah, just like a lot of flexibility yeah. um, with regards to, to interesting ideas that come our way. And if they don't fit with an issue, we can publish them like that. Um, so that's definitely one thing. And I think in thinking about the diversity of voices, like I definitely think in food media, there's been a huge focus in the last few years on including more diverse uh, voices, mm -hmm. um, rightfully and super importantly. But food media really tends to focus much more on consumption, thinking about restaurants and home cooking. Um, so I think it's really important that also this representation of diverse voices looks at lesser parts, lesser examined parts of the food system, thinking about more sort of production, thinking about farming um, and all the other stages around it that don't make it necessarily to more sort of glossy, yeah. glossy publications. So I think yeah. that's something that makes us unique as well. For the both of you, what has been your favorite moment since starting the whole platform and why? Um, I think... For me, I don't know if I could pick one moment, but I think the, the, the moments that have been the most meaningful are the ones that um, in which Isabel and I have been able to be together and to, to work um, in the same space. And um, as, as she said, I, we worked together in Berlin, um, but then she went away um, to do this permaculture course in Chile and then living in France and now living in Spain, being all over the place. <laughs> but <laughs> So it's been largely largely a remote venture, but um, but again, part of the reason that we um, started it is because we um, love working together and love spending time together and also um, love thinking about these issues together. So I think, um, yeah, the the best moments have been the ones where we where we've been able to come together and do that in in the same place at once. So I think one moment that stands out very strongly was the visioning workshop we had right at the very beginning. Um, more than a year ago now in um, in the summer, I think, summer last year. Um, and for me, that was the first time that FFK really started to feel real because um, as Isabella said at the beginning, um, when, when she was still away and we were kind of talking about it and there was all of these ideas being thrown around, but it all felt very abstract. And then we had this workshop um, together where suddenly it was like, wow, okay, I can actually see the shape forming around this. Um, and that was really fun. And then I think similarly around the launch of our first issue, Isabella came to Berlin and we hosted uh, a launch event. Um, and in the days leading up to the launch, we spent a lot of late nights um, being fed by my partner and, um, and editing and drawing and uploading together and then having this launch event followed by a party. It was super fun. And on a similar theme, I'm really looking forward to um, next month having her here again. Um, to do some forward planning and thinking about what FSJ will look like in 2023 and beyond. Are you also planning to do something in Kenya? 
<laughs> we don't have any particular plans, but okay. Um, yeah. Maybe and you invite us. Exactly. And maybe just a question still on the issues now that you're talking about Kenya, specifically on the war one. Do you always like intend on adding more articles to the issues or you just move? Once you're done with the, with the issue, you just move to the next issue and the articles will just focus on that issue. I think we're looking at the issues as self-contained capsules. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, sorry, I just have to let my dog in. He's scratching at the door. Sorry, I'll start that again. I think we're looking <laughs> at the issues um, more as self-contained capsules. But that said, we have had some interesting postscripts to the issues come up, um, largely through using that general newsletter, like I mentioned, um, to touch upon some of the themes. Um, so actually, the interview with the animal rebellion strategist that I, I mentioned um, earlier in this interview, she commented sort of on how um, the meat and dairy sector could be compared to a war in a sense to show some resonances with our war issue. Um, and an academic, oh, she's not actually, sorry, an academic, a journalist who we contacted in the run up to the war issue um, to ask her some information about some research that she'd done. She ended up writing something for us a few months after war came out also as a newsletter. Um, about a British wartime icon who transformed Britain's food system, which um, sounded like almost single-handedly at that time. So we never really add to the issues, but we do tie themes from the issues into further work if interesting pieces come up that we didn't have the chance to explore when we published. Yeah, okay, okay. And basically, Isabella, you also mentioned something at the beginning, not even at the beginning, I think in the middle of the conversation on the fact that most feminist movements are really not talking about food. Why Why is that? Why do we see that gap that most, and yet we have feminist feminist movements have been able to establish themselves really well, and how comes they're not picking up this important issue on food? I think, I think it has something to do with the ubiquity that we've mentioned. The fact that it's so ubiquitous, I think, often makes it invisible. Mm -hmm. And I think often we don't necessarily look to what appears to be mundane for inspiration for change even though of course the things that are mundane and ubiquitous are often sort of the most powerful levers because they're able to transform so many areas of our lives yeah so i think it's often with the fact that food work has traditionally often been a women's domain but it's really taken place within the home and sort of been the backdrop to a lot of other activities that are going on that makes it to me easy to overlook and in some ways i think the ways that food is used to oppress women, especially they, they can be quite sometimes, I think, what's the word I'm looking for? Not minute, but like small and they just add up over time. So in that way, it's not as agrarian say as like, you know, changing of abortion rights or something that, that that's really like a jarring sharp shift that brings people out on the streets. It's something small that's been accepted over time um, and that just sort of continues. So that would be my take on why I think it's been overlooked at least one of them. Um, I don't know, Zoe, if you have, you probably always have great ideas. You might have something else that you want to add. Mm, no, I think, I mean, I think I, I fully agree with everything you just said. I don't know if I have anything <laughs> more intelligent to say. Okay, that's fine. I guess then you oh, can. Yeah, I yeah. thought of one more. So I just want to say, but I also don't it's want to fine. say that feminist feminist movements have never touched food issues because that's that's also not exactly true. Um, yeah. And there have been movements. Say, um, I'm not sure what part of the 20th century, but I think early on movements to say collectivized kitchens in apartment buildings 
So women's food labor would be deduced and that, that, that labor would be collectivized a little bit. Um, and there's really interesting readings you can do on the history of these collective kitchens. That said, when you dig into them more, you realize that these were sort of fundamentally racist structures that actually would have allowed white women not to do many much kitchen work and women of color would have been the ones working in these collective kitchens that kept the buildings going. Um, so there is, there are, there is a history of feminist movements touching on food. It just hasn't been, I think, as explosive as an issue as other, other issues around, yeah, abortion, sexual liberation, women's health, et cetera. Um, and it's a history that hasn't also always gone right, but does have interesting learnings to dig into. Okay. Yes, Zoe? Yeah, and I think maybe, I maybe sorry, just, I think the, I think that the piece of, of food actually being used in, in ways, sometimes it's not necessarily like an explicit piece, um, but I'm just thinking about the piece we published in War on the NSARS movement. This is like a feminist group that was using food, I guess, not exactly to further a feminist cause, but to further a bigger cause. Um, and I, yeah, I think it's interesting the way, just the complexities of, of feminists using food, which I think is also so often framed as this thing that like ties women to the kitchen and therefore perpetuates gender inequality. But then when it's like turned around and used, um, yeah, used as a tool, in some way. And then I'm also thinking about like the, the um, women's liberation movement in the US and the women's, now I can't think of what the counter movement was called, but um, Phyllis Schlafly, who was like essentially trying to fight against the women's liberation movement in the US um, and her use of food to like sway votes um, <laughs> against, against um, the, laws that they were advocating for. So I don't know, just just interesting to think about the way ways, yeah, women use food to to further their goals maybe in, in less obvious ways. Yeah, interesting. And the both of you talked about that she, there's a new issue coming up, Earth. What kind of story should we expect? Or it's a secret. Is it a secret? <laughs> no, it's definitely not a secret. Um yeah. we are, yeah, we're super excited about it. It's been um we got actually more than a hundred pitches for our Earth issue, which oh, is wow. a record for us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so okay. we think this we think this really speaks to um, just how many important stories there are to be told at this kind of interesting intersection of of food, feminism, and Earth. Um, and I think you know we always leave our themes a little up to interpretation, so we're really excited when we get pitches for things that link this link to the theme in some kind of unexpected way. Um, but broadly, we conceptualize Earth around climate change, food production, plant medicine, links to place, etc. Um, and it was really difficult to choose a lineup because there were so many um, interesting options. But we really aim to try um, to include as broad a selection of topics and touch on as many different themes as possible. Um, and then we also try to think about the ways that the ideas in each piece complement one another or um, either like by reinforcing one another, but maybe with different types of circumstances or um, even sometimes the ways that they might contradict one another and then um, bring some complexity to the, complexity to the issues. So um, I, our, our lineup um, includes a piece on uh, lesbian dairy farmers. Um, as the antidote to capitalism. We have one on the impact of climate change on um, women herbalists in Zimbabwe. 
Uh, we have one on energy justice for women who make tortillas in rural Mexico. Um, there's one on herbalism and farming as reclamation of ancestral bonds broken by chattel slavery in the American South. Uh, one on hyperlocalism um, as um, ecofascism, essentially. Um, and then one on gender in the context of decolonizing indigenous foodways. Um, so pretty diverse um, set of ideas. Um, and our goal, uh, I think, as we've said many times now, is really um, to bring fresh perspectives and fresh stories to things that you might not read elsewhere. Uh, so that also goes into our selection criteria, or goes into our thinking as we, as we select um, the pieces. And then finally, uh, actually, in addition to this kind of core lineup that will come out as one issue, hopefully before the end of the year or early next year, um, we're also really excited to be publishing a series written by our new editor in residence, um, Leila Libetru, who um, I think you are. Oh, yeah. Here. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, so Leila's going to be publishing four pieces, um, which offer an inter intersectional analysis of food work and pesticides in South Africa. Um, so those will come out in the lead up, um, probably around roughly monthly uh, in the next few months. So anyone listening who wants to receive those can sign up to our Substack, and you'll get them in your email. I think I must emphasize on basically how interesting the work you're doing and how you're also trying to link food with all these issues. It's quite very interesting. Yeah. Very. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I'm really looking forward to the issue will be supporting on pesticides in South Africa. Yeah, we're really excited, excited about it, too. It. Oh, sorry, mm. so it's the exact same thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I also feel like the context is actually not very different from how, the, how in, basically in South Africa and in Kenya, I don't think the context is very different. Even when you talk about climate change, the impacts of climate change still affect every, every continent and basically every country. Yeah, definitely. And we're super excited to have Layla write this because I know, of course, she has such a great background um, in food security specifically and also in this pesticides work. And that's it's not a topic we've covered at any other point nor received actually any pitches on. So we're we're really excited to look at a feminist perspective on pesticides. Yeah. I think it's yeah, it's something that's quite new to Zoe and I as well. So we can't wait to see where she takes it. Yes. OK, so before we wind down. Oh, basically, before we wrap up the show, what messages would you love to leave for our listeners here in Kenya? An inspiring message, yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, it, it follows very much what we've said otherwise today, but I think my message would be to think about the ways that food and liberation in a lot of different areas intersect um, and what stories you can tell about them or what actions you can take. And here, when I say actions, I just want to also be very specific that I'm not necessarily always talking about individual actions. Um, and that's not because I don't think that they matter, but I always think the focus should much more be on the systemic, um, the systemic and the systems that shape our environments and the power that upholds certain unequal structures. Um, but to think about, yeah, ways you can amplify stories that you care about, join movements that you care about related to food and to feminism. Um, and to encourage your friends to pitch FFJ for our next issues so we can amplify their stories as well. Thank you, Sabella. Zoe? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think um, mine is something very in a very similar, in a similar vein anyway. Um, I think 
the the message is something for me around um, how the personal is political and uh, as we've already said, you know, food is such an essential part of our daily lives and the way that we engage with it um, has huge implications for um, the environment and also um, the way that power functions in our society. Um, so I guess it's not really like a vote with your fork message that I'm trying to go get across, although like I guess that could be one piece of it. But I just think um, challenging people to be cognizant of the ways that your relationships with food serve to reinforce and perpetuate certain systems of power. And similarly, the ways that, uh, or I guess, yeah, on the other side, the ways that it could also um, start to work to dismantle them. Yeah, thank you so much, Isabella. And thank you so much, Zoe. And I really hope that we'll get a chance to work together as the Root of Food Initiative and the Feminist Food Journal and see how you can also have a conversation about Kenya on the FFJ platform. Yeah, and uh, I really hope we'll touch base soon. We yeah, us too. Yeah, thank you so much for having us and for giving us the chance to talk about FFJ. We really, really love that <laughs> and for all of your thoughtful questions and kind yeah. feedback. And we would love to explore uh, opportunities to collaborate in the future and to have some more Kenyan content on FFJ for sure. Yeah, and also thank you so much for creating time to join me today. It's not something that I take for granted. Yeah. So thank you. And I mean, of course, we also sometimes do produce podcasts for our own show. So we understand sometimes how like nerve wracking it is to get people on and how much work it is to produce these things. So we're equally grateful that you took <laughs> the time to have us here um, and to edit and put together such such thoughtful questions yeah. and yeah we really look forward to seeing where the podcast grows in the future okay thank you so much and thank you so much to our listeners for listening in i hope this story of ffj inspires you to do something thank you so much like share subscribe Sante. Mm-hmm.